Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Dunlap, uh, Reverend Ann Dunlap, forgot my own name, <laughs> Reverend Ann. Ann, my name is Ann, um, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor uh, in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie and Seneca peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE faith and is particularly designed for white people. White people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you and especially from folks of color about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Well, friends, I have to tell you, I am totally enamored of autumn in Western New York. We've had some rainy days like today, but mostly the weather has been spectacular, sunny and cool, and the light makes the changing tree leaves glow in their shimmering reds and golds and oranges. And there's still so much green, and I keep discovering more herbs growing in our now favorite park we love to walk in along the path around the lake. For weeks now, we've been walking there and watching the slow change of the trees, the rose hips swelling to burst, hawthorn berries bright red against the blue sky. The autumn feels like a long, slow, gentle falling towards winter. And I keep asking folks, is it always like this? Is Buffalo just showing off because we're new here? Or is this what autumn is like every year because it's pretty incredible? And the answer, they tell me, is yes, which, hooray. And the answer is also, we aren't so sure anymore. With climate devastation, the signs that we know of the changing seasons, of what each season is supposed to bring, they're different now. The signs of the seasons are not what we've known them to be. The signs of the seasons... I've been thinking about that while pondering the lectionary reading from the brief prophetic vision of Joel. Joel calls them portents in the heavens and on the earth. A portent is just a fancy word for a really important sign that something is about to happen. So let's hear the selection from chapter two of the three chapters of Joel with a couple of added verses at the beginning because the lectionary editor sliced it off in the wrong place. Starting at verse 21. Do not fear, O soil. 
Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for the divine has given the early rain for your vindication and has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your children shall prophesy, your elders shall dream dreams, and your young people shall see visions. Even on all the people who are enslaved in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Signs of the Seasons Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to be relieved or scared. Joel is only three chapters long, so I sat down and read through the whole thing to prepare for this episode. It doesn't take very long if you want to pause here and go give it a read. Nobody is entirely sure when Joel was written, but it's clear the prophet's outcry comes in response to one of the many imperial crushings experienced by the people of Israel here described in rather ominous detail as a huge plague of locusts swarming over the land and the cities, destroying everything in its path, their teeth so sharp they are said to be lion's teeth. It reads like something out of a horror movie. And there does seem to be some of that covenantal dynamic I talked about in my last episode, where God's judgment is rendered upon the imperial oppressors of Israel and God simultaneously uses imperial oppression as a judgment upon the oppression practiced by the ruling class of the people of Israel. Two things happening at once. So here in Joel, the locust swarm is simultaneously the invading nation and God's judgment on the people being invaded. 
Although I'll be honest, I'm not sure Joel is all that worried about whatever the people of Israel did. Most of the other prophets make clear the injustices of Israel's ruling class. They spend a lot of time on that. But here in Joel, there's only the briefest mentions of returning and repenting and the devastation being something God sent, which, as I talked about last time, is a little hard for us to wrap our heads around. So it's important to remember that part of the prophetic framework is the unwavering belief that God is in charge, always, always, even of the swarming, conquering armies. To imagine that God is in charge, that God is at work even, even in the oppressor, is, I think, a key survival strategy for a people who are crushed repeatedly by invading locust swarms of empires. Part of the prophetic imagination is that belief that there is some bigger divine purpose being worked out, some mystery beyond our knowledge, and maybe we don't understand it. Maybe it doesn't answer all of our questions. But if God is at the head of the locust swarm, then perhaps all hope is not lost. I will repay you, the divine says, through Joel's mouth. Nevertheless, as I said, Joel spends almost no time on naming whatever the sins of Israel are, or how angry God might be about that. I kept looking and looking for it, and it's not there. No, it seems to me that Joel is much more interested in other things, like making sure the people are awake to the destruction that's happening, that they understand what their response should be, and that they are reading the signs of the seasons so they know that the divine is about to show up and kick some locust ass. I just found this so curious, the lack of emphasis on judging the people, that I kept reading and rereading to see if I was missing it. But no, I, I think I'm reading it right. So... You're hearing me as I'm trying to work it out for us, what Joel is up to here. Because Joel sees the day of the Lord coming, and he wants the people to be ready. Have you ever seen anything like this? Joel starts off. Has anything like this happened before? The locusts have destroyed everything. The invading nation has left nothing in its swarming, devouring wake. Are you seeing this? Wake up. Fields are destroyed. There's no food, no pasture for animals. Water sources have dried up. Fire has devoured the wilderness. Even joy has withered away. This is what happens when the locusts come, come pouring in across the fields and mountains, over the walls and into the windows, making a terrifying noise. So many of them, they block out the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is what happens when the empire comes. Are you paying attention to the signs? Wake up, wake up and grieve. Joel says this over and over, grieve, weep, wail, lament, 
mourn. And I'm wondering if that's the problem Joel is trying to name, why the people need to return, to repent, to rend their hearts. Maybe they've been trying to go on like nothing has happened. Like we should just put our heads down and keep trying the same old things, keep trying to negotiate with a locust army, like this is all there is, no future more than this. But Joel says, even the ground mourns. Even the wild animals cry out. They know devastation when they see it. They don't need reminding, but the humans do. Wake up. Wake up and grieve. Join the land and the animals and the plants in lamenting what happens when the empire comes to devour creation. Joel tells the people to fast, to weep, and to cry out. That's the context in which he tells them to return to God. Name what's happening. Grieve it. Call everyone together, all the people, children and elders and farmers and priests, and wail and mourn and demand God show up. Like that's part of the deal. Like the divine needs our outcry to know how to show up. Not because of apathy or cruelty, but maybe it's something to do with consent, something to do with relationships, and maybe it's also, if we're not awake, if we're not doing our part, we miss it completely when God shows up and kicks some locust ass. Maybe it's the divine wanting us desperately to know how much oppression pisses them off, how much they want to repay us for everything we've suffered. They want us to know in our very bodies how jealous they are for us, like abundant rain washing over us, like bread and wine and oil filling our bellies and spirits. My people shall never again be put to shame. But if we aren't doing our part with our grief and our outcry, we miss it. We miss the signs of the seasons. We miss the dreams and the visions of our young people and our elders, of the enslaved people getting free, all those the locusts try to dismiss. We miss God's spirit poured out in ways that disrupt hierarchies, in ways that restore the balance of the rhythms of the earth, the spirit, the wind poured out. And the people of that time would have known the desert wind that marked and still marks the change from the dry season to the rainy season in that land, a wind that kicked up so much dust it made the moon look red. That's all that imagery means. The seasons are changing. Pay attention to the signs. Change is coming. God is coming to repay, to restore everything. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. That locust swarm in Joel is so dramatic, so sudden and swarming and quick, and it feels like God's response is just as dramatic, just as sudden and quick. And the implication is that things are fixed once and for all, that change comes like a single thunderclap, rather than openings, opportunities, large and small, to make choices that shape the future we long for.
I think Joel's insistence on people waking up and grieving and paying attention tells us that in spite of his dramatic descriptions, change can actually happen in ways that we might miss. That if we are not reading the signs of the seasons, we will miss the moments of restoration. We will miss the opportunities to make different choices. If we keep our heads down and think this is all there is, then in the language of the reading, we are not saved. We miss the opportunity for salvation, for healing, for restoration. If we're not grieving the devastation, then we miss the restoration. Because listen, empires are locust swarms that last for generations. It's been 500 plus years since Columbus and the first white supremacist swarms of genocide and enslavement and environmental destruction that devoured the Americas. And it might feel like at this end of it, with our very survival as a species so much in doubt, that the day of the Lord is never coming. And yet, perhaps it has. Perhaps it came with every revolt of enslaved people. Perhaps it came with every ceremony indigenous people held in secret. Perhaps it came with every person Harriet Tubman got to freedom. Perhaps it came with worker strikes that stopped the worst abuses of labor. Perhaps it came with every stop on the Underground Railroad. Perhaps it came with every house of worship that declared itself a sanctuary. Perhaps it came with every white ancestor of ours who tried to make different choices than their ancestors did. Perhaps the day of the Lord has always been coming. Perhaps it is coming now. Perhaps it is coming now, even in the midst of this most recent manifestation of the locust swarm's devastation, because you see, that's one of the signs. When we understand clearly that this U.S. imperial project is a devouring, violent, swarming army, and we can no longer keep trying the same old things, keeping our heads down, trying to negotiate with it or reform it from the inside. Name the devastation. Name it for what it is. Collectively, in public, grieve it. Rend your hearts, Joel says. Rend your hearts and listen to the ones who are dreaming up a new world, who see it coming. Because that's also a sign that the ones the locust swarm ignores, marginalize, and mistreats, in this case the children, the elders, the enslaved, the land, the animals, even the sun and moon and stars, these are the ones who are given the dreams, the visions, the ones who remind us this is not all there is, who perceive the possibilities breaking forth out of the devastation, which is to say, salvation. And so what I want to say for us as white folks is that this is a word for us. Are we paying attention to the signs? It's a challenge for me, and maybe for you, to wrap my head around the idea that the devastation itself is one of the signs that the divine is at work, ready to restore, ready to kick some locust ass. Like, could we just not have the devastation to begin with? If God's going to show up, why didn't he just stop empires right from the start? There's no good answer to that question. 
What we know is humans build empires. Humans choose violence and dominating power. What we also know is that acting like everything is fine, acting like what we need is for everyone to just be nicer to each other and not a total dismantling and rebuilding, acting like white supremacy is not a locust army devouring everything, everything in its path, acting like that makes sure the empire keeps on rolling. That's what whiteness does to us tries to make us believe we do not see what we see, that we do not know what we know, that the locust army is what keeps us safe, that we are mistaken about the clear signs of the seasons. Whiteness is a denial of the destruction it causes. Prophet Joel is calling us out of our denial, calling us to be clear about the devastation this empire is causing us, calling us to join with the land and its creatures in mourning and lamenting collectively in public. And this is what it means for God to show up, that we show up. The day of the Lord comes when we show up and tell the truth collectively, publicly, about the devastation The devastation is a sign of the season because the people rise up in response, rise up in lament, rise up in protest, rise up dreaming of new worlds, rise up getting their freedom. And our brother prophet Joel calls that divine. Joel calls that salvation. Not only for humans, but for the whole entire earth. Bernice Johnson Reagan wrote the song in the aftermath of Watergate. Let's see if I can do it some justice. This is the chorus. There's a new world coming. Everything's gonna be turning over. Everything's gonna be turning over. Where you gonna be standing when it comes? Because we also know empires never last. Pharaoh's army got drowned in the Red Sea. Assyria is gone. Babylon is gone. Rome is gone. The locust armies always fall apart in the end. They fall apart because our collective action makes them untenable. They fall apart because the enslaved will always fight for their freedom. They fall apart because the oppressed dream and envision new ways of being human together. So my call to action for you today is first of all to say thank you. Thank you for all the ways you are already showing up. All the ways you are gathering collectively and publicly to tell the truth about the swarming locust that is the U.S. empire. All the ways you are letting yourself wake up, even when it's hard, even when the answers leave a lot to mystery, even when it feels like the grief over the devastation will never end. 
Thank you. Keep going. Let's keep going. And second, are we listening to the dreams and visions of the elders and the children and the oppressed? What are they telling us? What are they telling us is needed for our salvation? Pull your people together and read up on transformative justice with Mia Mingus and Mariam Kaba, on emergent strategy and the importance of pleasure with Adrian Marie Brown, on right relationship with the earth with Autumn Peltier and other young indigenous leaders, on what the marine mammals can teach us about what it means to be human with Alexis Pauline Gums. I've also been reading Afrofuturist sci-fi lately for the dreams and visions these writers are sharing with us, like Octavia Butler, the Octavia's Brood um, sci-fi collection, Nettie Okafor's Binti trilogy, and I've just finished N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, which honestly shook me deeply. And also, I want to lift up for you the recent On Being interview with Reverend Jen Bailey of Faith Matters and, and Lennon Flowers co-founders of the People's Supper. Reverend Bailey says, we are at a really deep and important moment of uncovering that is ugly and there is a choice before us. And the question is whether or not we will continue to be in process towards the promise of what America could be or default into the worst of our instincts. There is a choice before us. There's a new world coming. Where are you going to be standing when it comes? Thanks as always for joining me wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your actions go. We'd love to hear from you. You can comment on our SoundCloud or on Twitter um, or in our Facebook group. Next week, John Bergen will be back with the resistance word for us for November 3rd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance and give us a like or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are always available on our website um, and they include references, resources, action links, all kinds of good stuff. And finally, as always, a huge thanks to our wonderful and patient sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. We appreciate you so much. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.